contrast three accounts, one real and two fictional, of children in search of what God looks like. In the first version, James McBride, author of the book The Color of Water, struggled as a child to understand God. His uh, Jewish mother tried to help him, saying, God's not black, he's not white, he's a spirit. But that description did not satisfy young James, who persisted, what's a spirit? She fumbled for a definition, uh, spirit's a spirit. What color is God's spirit, the boy persevered. It doesn't have a color, she said. God is the color of water. Water does not have a color. The second account, a fictional one, takes place during Hebrew school, free discussion time, in Philip Roth's short story, The Conversion of the Jews. Thirteen-year-old Ozzy, the story's main protagonist, known by his peers and the rabbi for asking a different kind of question, asked another different kind of question during free time. He said to Rabbi Binder, if God can do anything, why can't he make a child without intercourse? Referring, of course, to the Immaculate Conception of Mary. However, the snickering comedy attendant to 13-year-old males hearing that word set pandemonium into motion that left the escaped, frightened, but defiant adolescent Ozzy on the roof of the religious school where he promised not to jump off in spite of the urging of his adolescent compatriots if everyone, the rabbi, the custodian, his mother, his classmates, the firemen holding a net, and the bystanders would say that God could do anything, including immaculate conception. In so doing, Ozzy was transformed from a powerless, inquisitive child who sought explanations for everything he did not understand into a dogmatic demagogue who took up the adult stance of imposing unwanted beliefs on others. As a result of the unfolding commotion, Rabbi Binda, once able to force his illogical ideas on Ozzy, faced a defiant boy who could now force his ideas on the rabbi and on everyone else in earshot. The third account is of a princess whose father, the king, gave her everything she ever wanted. One day she came to him and said, I want to see God. God, her father asked. That's impossible. No one can see God. But the princess became more demanding, and she stamped her foot and said, I want to see God. The king summoned the royal treasurer. My daughter demands to see God. Take her to see God. The treasurer led the princess down long passageways beneath the palace until they arrived at the treasury where there was more gold, silver, and precious stones than she'd ever seen in her life. Here is God, declared the treasurer. That's not God, retorted the princess. That's just a pile of gold and silver and gems. I want to see God. Next, the king summoned the chief justice. The justice knew exactly where God could be found, and he took the princess to the royal archives and showed her the massive tomes of law 
that governed the kingdom. These laws are God here in your father's kingdom, he proudly stated. Those books are not God, the princess scolded. Sometime later, the king met an old man and asked how he was. The man said, well, thank you, uh, thank God. The king asked, do you know God? I do, of course, replied the old man. The king said, my daughter demands that I show her God. Can you show her God? The man said to the princess, please come with me. The man led the princess down a long road to a tumble-down house. The old man waited outside and motioned for the princess to enter the house. The princess had never seen such a poor house before, and she entered and saw a young girl sitting in a chair. I'm the princess, she announced. When you meet a princess, you are required to stand up and bow to me. She continued haughtily. Oh, I, I would, said the girl, but, but I can't. What do you mean you can't, the princess demanded. I, I'm unable to stand or walk, the girl responded. The princess was so shocked to see her shriveled legs and quickly turned and left. Take me back to the palace immediately, she demanded. When she reached home, she asked the man if she might bring some food and a new dress to the poverty-stricken girl. The old man saw tears welling up in her eyes, and he handed the princess a mirror. The princess looked into the mirror, and she began to cry and cry. The old man turned to the princess and said, Now you have seen God. The search through metaphor, dogma, mitzvah, of trying to make sense of who God is, what God looks like and what God does is common to virtually every tradition. Children tend to be concrete. An abstract concept like an unseen, invisible God is very troubling to young minds that need certainty. Why can't people see God like they did in the Bible, I'm often asked by both child and adult alike. We've just concluded the annual reading of the book of Exodus, the bridge between our nomadic origins and the settling into the promised land. The intimate relationship between man and God portrayed so powerfully in Exodus raises important questions as whether or not mortals can have such comparable moments of revelation and redemption whether they can see God, whether we can see God. It is a question of consequence because Moses is the only individual in the book of Exodus to both see God and talk to God. Encounters that burdened Moses with the responsibility of convincing the Israelites that God is real, not an uncommon difficulty for religious leaders. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, Moses worried about how he could convince the Israelites that God is real. He asked, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God's answer in Hebrew, ehiyeh asher ehiyeh, I will be what I will be sent me to you. 
a name so elusive and ambiguous that the description could not have been comprehensible. Nevertheless, so much did the Israelites hunger for a glimpse of Ehiyeh Asher Ehiyeh, or any god, in fact, that in Moses' absence they built the golden calf. When the people saw the completed product, they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The idol may have mollified the majority of people, but Moses was so enraged by this feeble effort to depict God, the God that he had such a personal relationship with that he smashed the Ten Commandments against the ground. But even Moses was not satisfied that God did the wonders for the Israelites by leading them to freedom and providing them with law could not be visible. Moses implored, Oh, let me behold your presence. And God's reply is well known. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. You cannot see my face, for man may not see me and live. Furthermore, in Exodus, there is the account of an elaborate curtain, the parochet, that separated supplicants from the tabernacle's holy of holies, the inner sanctum, where God was said to be present, and is described as the curtain that protected Aaron from seeing the face of God. After all, he was warned to stay behind when he entered the tabernacle, lest he die. The desire to see God is, in fact, universal. As the temple was being destroyed in Jerusalem, Titus, the Roman general who later became emperor, the man who led the assault, forced his way into the innermost chamber of the temple because he wanted to see what it was that Jews worshipped. He was astounded to find the room empty, whereupon he laughed and declared the God of the Jews to be impotent. The invisible God of the Israelites was as abstract for Titus as it was for the builders of the golden calf, and as it is, I might add, for many of us. Here is the paradox. In spite of the admonition that no man may see God and live, there nevertheless are sightings of the incomprehensible, unknowable God who cannot be seen. For example, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as an individual would speak to a friend. We read that in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. The revelation, that revelation, is not dissimilar to that of Jacob in which after wrestling with an angel man, Jacob named that sacred spot Pinael, meaning, I have seen God face to face. Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders of Israel saw the God of Israel under his feet, and there was a likeness of the pavement of sapphire, the very sky for purity. Nevertheless, most Jews would be satisfied with just a fleeting hint 
of what the biblical author described as God's back, God's fingerprint, or the faint sound of the still small voice. The struggle to see beyond the veil that conceals God from the human eye is an ongoing one. The faithful would be satisfied with just a glimpse of the back, the fingerprint, the hand, or the faint sound of God's voice. At moments when we, like Moses, ask, show me your glory, we struggle to see through the veil of hiddenness for a fleeting glimpse of the eternal, knowing that the answer to Exodus's question, can we see God, is both yes and no. Vision depends upon intuition. Sight depends upon insight. The consummate observation about the ability of God, of Moses, to intuit God in the burning bush, not just a bush, but the very presence of God, is found in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, Aurora Lee, that points out this difference. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. We who search for God's back, for God's fingerprint, for the faint sound of a still small voice, would do well to be open to God's call from unexpected places. Because it is only when we do not ignore his image in every common bush of fire with the light of the Lord that we too can see God and live. Amen.